Okay, we'll go ahead and get started here. Like I say, I try to get going on time. I try to get finished on time. So um, <clears throat> let me have a word of prayer and we'll, we'll open up. Lord, we do thank you now just for uh, the privilege of looking into your word. Uh, the privilege of studying uh, Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. Lord, what a rich letter it is. Lord, we, again, are thankful that we live in a day, at a time, where we can have a copy of your word in our own hands. Lord, so many generations of Christians have not had this privilege. And yet, Lord, with that privilege comes a responsibility for us to utilize your word, to study your word, to learn your word. To let your word fill our hearts and, and ultimately touch our lives. And Lord, we pray that that will be the result of our time in Colossians today and in the weeks to come. So Lord, we just want to commit this time now to you. For it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Okay, let me just say here at the beginning, you know, I am recording this. If anybody misses a week and, and wants to get it, you can... If I can get this thing to move forward, there we go. Uh, you can either email me or text me, and I will send you the MP3. Uh, if you text me, include your email because the MP3 is too big to attach to a text. Uh, so I have to send it to, to an email address, uh, but I'm more than happy to do that. Also, if anybody wants my notes... If you'll let me know that, I can email them to you. Um, let me know if you can open them in a, in a Word document or if you need me to convert them to a PDF. Uh, because I, I can send them in either form. Uh, but some people like having the, uh, you know, the printed uh, notes. And I'm more than happy to supply them to you. Uh, if you want them, just let me know. And, and I'll get them, get them off to you. So that's my email. Uh, that's my f- uh, phone number. They should be in the directory, but just in case uh, you don't have the directory yet and you, you want to get in touch, uh, just feel free to contact me by that means. Now last week we spent our time uh, uh, introducing uh, this epistle. Uh, mainly looking at background information. Uh, We pointed out, you know, this is a letter, uh, and it was written from someone to someone. And in in studying a letter like this, it's helpful if we kind of know the setting in which it was, um, to which it was sent, if we know something about the audience, if we know a bit about uh, the author. So we spent some time looking at that and we ended up on the note of the theme of the letter. And when it comes to studying the scripture, man, that's not very bright, is it? Yeah, I don't know why. Okay. Yeah, I guess I had that in a gray, and I should have had it in a in a white. Uh, the theme of uh, of a letter uh, or of any biblical book is of inc- incredible importance. You know, 
when the author of the letter or something sat down to write it, there was a reason for writing it. I mean, even today, if you sit down to write a letter, which doesn't happen so much anymore, everybody sends texts in it, but if you sit down to write something, you have a reason why you're writing it. You know, it might be nothing more than informing the, uh, the party to which you're writing about how you're doing or something. But you have a reason. You don't just sit down and randomly write something for no reason. And when it comes to, you know, the, uh, the biblical books and um, the New Testament epistles, when the author sat down to write it, there was a reason. And that reason can generally be um, boiled down to a sentence. A sentence that basically describes the whole intent of the writing. And if we understand that theme, it really helps us as we go through the book. Especially, I've found themes very helpful when it comes to problem passages. Because if you have a clue about what the, the author is trying to achieve, it sometimes helps us sort out why on earth he would say what he just said in this particular place. And so, as we go through Colossians, we're going to be following a theme. And I believe the theme of Colossians can be boiled down to this one sentence. That the Christian life finds its sole source in Jesus Christ, who is preeminent over all things. That everything we need for the Christian life is packaged in Christ. And he's above everything and everyone else. We need nothing else. And see, Paul, uh, we pointed out last week, was prompted to write this letter with this theme. He was prompted to write it because of of certain false teachings that were coming into the the, uh, church. And those false teachings, I think, will become clear as we go through this letter were, first of all, challenging the preeminence of Christ. They were challenging the fact that he was above all. And as they challenged his preeminence, they also began to challenge the fact that he was enough. There were, they were wanting to add certain things They were saying, okay, it's fine for you uh, to uh, put your your faith in Christ, but in addition to Christ, you need this and this and this and this and this. And we still live in a day when that's often the case. There's many out there who say, yeah, it's all well and good to put your faith in Christ and uh, to go to heaven in the future, but to live life, you need this. And this. And this. And they take away from Christ. And so Paul is going to be focused very heavily on the preeminence of Christ. And then once he has established that, he will begin to talk about how this is, uh, how if we understand and accept his preeminence, how it's going to impact our lives. Our day-to-day lives. Now, 
As we go through the letter, I'll, I'll throw a little chart up as we go. A chart that kind of pulls together the letter. The theme I have across the top because that runs through the entire letter. Every section underneath it, it, it should be in some way tied to that theme. Should in some way develop it. And so we start out with the theme across the top and I'll probably review this most weeks because I just really hope that by the time we get to the end of Colossians, if somebody asked you what Colossians was about, you could give them at least this one sentence and say, you know, this is what Colossians is about. You know, I have a nephew who's going to Dallas Theological Seminary. And in one of his first classes, uh, one of the professors, you know, asked uh, the class, how many of you uh, were raised in churches, you know, that did expository teaching? He said a whole lot of the class raised their hands. And he said, okay, how many of you have been through the study of the book of Romans? And again, a lot of them raised their hands. And he said, okay, how many of you can tell me in a sentence what Romans is about? Not one hand went up. No one could describe in a sentence what Romans was about. Even though they had been taught Romans... They never understood just in one sentence what pulled all of Romans together. And I don't want you to go away from our study of Colossians without knowing in a concise way what this letter is about. So that if you sit down to study it on your own in the future... You know, and you know this is what Paul's trying to accomplish. You can study through it and see for yourself how everything in it fits together. So this is the the theme. Now, of course, the first two verses are Paul's opening salutation. And, you know, they're devoted towards introducing himself, uh, addressing his audience, and uh, just giving his opening words to them. Now, of course, the writer identifies himself as the Apostle Paul. We talked about that last week. We said that at least this is one letter that has not been heavily contested when it comes to authorship. Uh, there's enough of Paul's writings out there that we are very well aware of his writing style. And, uh, you know, everything about this letter basically fits with Paul. I'm not going to say no one has challenged the authorship because there are uh, liberal uh, theologians and things that, well, challenge everything. Uh, but uh, from the first century on, it's been accepted that, that Paul wrote this letter. But he identifies himself here as an apostle by the will of God. Now, of all the apostles, Paul faced more challenges to his apostleship than, than anyone else. And that's because, first of all, he was a latecomer to apostleship. 
And in addition to that, his time prior to becoming apostle was spent trying to wipe out the church. Uh, standing in opposition to it. You know, those apostles that had accompanied Christ during his three and a half years of ministry were pretty generally accepted from day one. They were, uh, right off the bat, uh, accepted because Christ had himself, you know, in a, a way that could be witnessed by others, appointed them as apostles. Now, Paul also was appointed by Christ, but it was, you know, in a, uh, on the road to Damascus. And so there were always those, especially in the early years of the church, that were somewhat skeptical about him and, and were somewhat concerned about him. So Paul oftentimes opens his letters with a statement that reminds his readers that he indeed was an apostle and not because he chose to function in that role but because Christ had put him in that role. And again, this set him apart from a lot of the false teachers that he's going to be dealing with in their false teaching who were self-appointed to those positions. Paul was appointed to this position by God and therefore he writes with all the authority of God behind him. This is going to be a very authoritative letter. Now, of course, he is the primary writer. And his apostleship becomes the basis of, a, of the authority of this letter. But he also identifies uh, Timothy as a co-writer of this letter. And this was a common practice of Paul. You know, Paul was not one who, who wanted to hog the, the spotlight. Uh, he was an apostle because God made him such. But he also recognized the importance of other believers and their role. And we find that along with Silas, Timothy is seen uh, to be involved in uh, the, letters to, uh, the two letters to Thessalonica the letter to Philemon, and uh, the second letter to the church in Corinth. And of course, Timothy was very much a part of Paul's life and ministry. He joined Paul on his second missionary journey. And from that point on, they spent a lot of time together. Paul relied heavily upon him when uh, problems arose in Ephesus. Uh, years later, it was Timothy that he sent to Ephesus. Uh, and uh, it, uh, Timothy was in Ephesus when he received both letters uh, to himself from Paul. So uh, Paul here... Uh, certainly uh, presents himself as the author of this letter, but he uh, points out that Timothy uh, was involved in uh, what he is writing. Now, it's verse 2 that gives us his audience. Again, we talked about that last week. Uh, uh, it's uh, the believers in the, the town of Colossae. Verse 2, To the saints... And faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from our God and Father. 
So he addresses those in Colossae, first of all, as saints. And the term saint has the same root, Greek root as the word holy, the word sanctify. It means someone who is set apart. In this case, set apart as unto God. Now, you know, we as believers, sadly, tend to cling to an identity that we're sinners. You know, most believers, you know, I've heard this in testimonies over and over again. Well, I'm just a sinner. You came to the cross as just a sinner. You left the empty tomb with Christ very different. Some years ago, when when I was in Ireland, it suddenly struck me about the word sinner, and I decided, I, I took my... My quick verse, my and my Bible search engine, and I put in the word sinner, sinners, all that. I put it in starting in Romans and going all the way up through Jude, the epistles. And it amazed me what came back. The word sinner appears six times from Romans 1 to, to the... Through the epistle Jude, six times, three of them are clearly unbelievers, referenced unbelievers. Three are more neutral. You can take them one way or the other. People say, well, what about Paul? Paul says, I'm the chief of the sinner. Paul said, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. Paul simply said, I was at the front of the line of the ones he came to save. But look at the, the way Paul introduces himself in his letters. Does he ever once say, Paul the sinner? No. Paul chose from the time of salvation on to identify himself on the basis of his relationship to Christ. Now, when I did that word search, here's what I also found. That in those same passages where the word sinner only appears six times, we are referred to as brethren 135 times, saints 30 times, sons 20 times, children 57 times, heirs 15 times, those who are free 29 times, those who are alive 7 times, the temple of God 5 times. Those are the terms God uses for me and you. And we need to begin to see ourselves through the eyes of God. Yes, we still have sin in us. But in God's eyes, we are not defined by sin. We are defined by our relationship to Christ. And if our focus is on sin, it is going to pull us down. If you define yourself as a sinner, what is a sinner going to do? Sin. When I have my prayer time in the morning, I don't pray, Lord, help me not to sin today. My prayer is, Lord, I want to... See myself through your eyes. 
I want to live like a citizen of heaven. I want to live like a child of the Most High God. I want to live on the basis of who I am and what I have in Christ. So many have a negative approach to the Christian life. They're trying not to sin. That's the wrong focus. The term sin means miss the mark. You know, I used to hunt a lot. And if your focus is it, I don't want to miss, I don't want to miss, I don't want to miss, you're going to miss. Because if your focus is at all the different ways you can miss the mark, you're going to miss it. If you want to hit the mark, you focus on the mark. And our focus needs to be on Christ. And we're going to see that as we get more and more into this letter. Our focus needs to be on who we are and what we have in Christ. The whole new creation life. You know, how many people quote the verse, you know, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. And yet, they continue to look at themselves as the old creation. They still define themselves in Adam. Rather than learning to define themselves in Christ. What's changed my life more than anything else has been coming to define myself as I am in Christ. Yes, I still have sin within me. I can't say otherwise. My wife's in the room. I have sin in me. And when I sin, I acknowledge it, but I don't get focused on the sin. I keep bringing my focus back to Christ and who I am and what I have in Him. Paul, in most of his letters, addresses his audience, first of all, as saints. Even the church in Corinth. Paul doesn't write to the church in Corinth with all the mess that was going on. He doesn't say to the dirty, rotten sinners in Corinth. He calls them saints. And it's interesting that in his letter to the church at Corinth, six times he says, don't you know? He says, you're living like you don't have a clue who you are and what you have. Your lives are evidencing that you don't really have a handle on these truths. One of them, you know, don't you know your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit? He says, you're living like you, you don't know the Holy Spirit's in you. Over and over again, he throws that out at him because... He says, your life is intended to reflect a new reality. Who you are and what you have in Christ. So he starts off uh, referring to him as saints. A term he uses, like I say, that's used 30 times in the epistles. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to refer to them as faithful brethren. That term brethren, as I said earlier, is uh, used 135 times 
in the epistles. But he doesn't just refer to them as brethren. He refers to them as faithful brethren. And this is important in light of the fact that throughout the remainder of the letter, he's going to be dealing with, you know, this, uh, confronting this heresy that was being promoted in Colossae, or maybe be better off say heresies, because it seems there was a hodgepodge of errors being, being taught. And, you know, at the time he writes this letter, the indication is that word has come to him in prison there in Rome that some of the believers there in Colossae have fallen prey to it. So this is not a hypothetical thing in the future. This is something that had already begun to take its toll. And those who have been pulled away, you know, have, have already drank the Kool-Aid as it was. But there were those who hadn't, and, and so he is writing to those who up to this point have remained faithful. And the intent of this letter is to help enable them to remain faithful, to shore up their belief system, to remind them of who Christ is, to remind them of what Christ has done, to remind them of the all sufficiency of Christ so that they might remain faithful in the days ahead. Now to this group of faithful believers, Paul makes the statement, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now Paul often uses this salutation in his writings, but I don't believe them to be perfunctory words. There are some I've heard say, well, the Romans greeted themselves with the word grace and the Jews with peace. So Paul just throws them both together. I don't think that for a minute. Paul's words have reasons. They have meaning. Paul's being prompted by the Holy Spirit. These are not simply perfunctory words. And, you know, if you study the, the writings of Paul to any extent, you cannot help but see that grace is at the very heart of his writings. Paul, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees until he met Christ on the road to Emmaus, not on the road to Emmaus, on the road to Damascus, came to see just the value of God's grace. He went from being the, one of the most leg, uh, strong legalists out there to becoming a person who was just enamored with the grace of God. And it permeates his writings. And when this phrase here is viewed in light of Paul's reason for writing this letter, it takes on a lot of significance. When Paul speaks of grace, and grace by definition is unmerited favor. It is God bestowing upon us that which we do not deserve. In fact, we deserve the opposite. Um, in scripture you have grace and mercy. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. Grace is him giving us what we don't deserve. It's his favor 
freely bestowed upon us. And so when he speaks of grace, that unmerited favor, he's speaking of something that's not only foundational to the to Christian doctrine, but is absolutely foreign to the heresies he was, he was confronting. False teaching, in general, does not take into account grace. The exception might be those who speak of grace and use it to um, excuse licentiousness, uh, just going out and sinning. But, you know, false teaching doesn't really embrace grace. In fact, in most religious systems, grace, the need of grace is denied either from the standpoint of man not really being seen as a lost creature, or, and this is often the case, salvation being attained by a merit system. If you look at most false religious systems out there there's a merit system involved if you do this 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 and this God will accept you and amazingly the more complicated the system the more people like it grace while being one of the most wonderful truths about salvation is also one of the things that causes so many people to reject it. Because people want to be able to take some sort of credit for their standing before God. You know, we uh, again, I was staff at FOA for many years. And uh, a lot of the clients we had back then were on welfare. Have yet to hear one of them accept the fact that, that uh, they didn't deserve the welfare they were getting. You know, charity is okay for somebody else. But people hate the concept of charity for themselves. We want to think we deserve what we're getting. And grace says, you don't. I don't deserve to be a child of the Most High God. I don't deserve to be a citizen of heaven. I don't even deserve the privilege of being up here teaching His Word. It's all of God's grace freely bestowed to me through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as Paul addresses these heresies, and we're going to see, you know, one of the things that Paul was dealing with there in, uh, in Colossae uh, was those who were trying to bring the, the law system from Judaism over into it. Saying, you know, uh, yeah, it's okay to accept Christ as your Savior, but now you need to observe the Sabbath. You need to observe the feast days. Uh, uh, the men need to be circumcised. You know, you need to do all these. 
And then there were other systems that were telling people, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to abstain from this. And so Paul begins his letter talking about grace. And one of the benefits of grace is peace. You know, as an individual comes to grasp that his salvation, whether we're talking about in regards to time or eternity, rests on God's resources, not his own, it lifts a lot of pressure. And this is why Paul continually, in his writing, links these two words. If one's approach to the Christian life leaves one lacking peace, something is wrong. If your view of the Christian life leaves you lacking peace, there's something wrong. And I'm probably pretty certain that where the problem starts is in your understanding of grace and what grace has provided. Because if we don't understand grace, we're going to lack peace. If we don't understand that God in His grace has already provided us full acceptance in the beloved, we're going to struggle from day to day. Am I accepted? And yet, Scripture tells us I am. And I'm not accepted on the basis of the life I'm living. I'm accepted on the basis of my relationship to Christ. If I struggle with whether I, you know, have the right to stand in the presence of a holy God, I don't understand that God in His grace has imputed Christ's righteousness to me so that when God looks at me, He sees the very righteousness of Christ. You know, if I'm struggling from day to day, worrying what am I lacking that I need for the Christian life, I have not come to accept what Scripture says, that I have been given everything necessary for life and godliness. That in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And that I'm complete in Him. That I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. As I come to understand these truths, they will bring more and more peace into my life. Because I will begin, first of all, to understand I am totally at peace with God. That enmity that once had me separated from God has been dealt with. And I don't have to wake up in the morning and wonder, am I at peace with God or not? I'm totally at peace with God. And the more I understand that I'm at peace with God, the more I begin to experience His peace in the events of life. Because I begin to understand that no matter what enters my life, it is sifted through His will. And I am His child. And He is going to be watching over me. 
And if something hard enters my life, there's a, I can trust there's a reason for it. And that he is going to use it. And so I can be at peace in, in those circumstances. Yeah, sweetie. Uh, I was just thinking, y'all, during the last week, we've been here a little over two years. And during this time, I've had uh, just some struggles with some things. And just, it's just a freeing thing when you can go to the Lord and, and you're here in this struggle and there's not peace. And this very thing that the Lord is giving Rick to tell us is that even in that, we, we can say it was so sweet to me to say, Lord, I'm not at peace. I'm struggling with this. But thank you that as I grow with you, as I'm coming to you, that you are at work and you are teaching me in this and you will give me peace. And I just need to keep my eyes on my Lord. And I would pray that and pray that. And I was thinking, not because you said that, mm. but because of the words of the message. You know how the, oh, you know, what they call life coaches, positive yeah. thinking thing. Yeah. People uh, have you maybe listen to a tape every morning before you start your day. This would be a good thing for us to listen to every morning. Mm. <laughs> because it just helps us so much to see who we are and the peace that is there for us in knowing Christ. Yeah. And yet we need to be reminded again and again. Again and again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Paul in uh, Romans 12 talks about being transformed. How? By the renewing of our minds. Our transformation starts with gaining a new mindset. And that mindset involves renewing my view of myself, seeing myself through the eyes of God. It involves being reminded over and over and over again that everything is based on the grace of God. You know... We live in a world system where everything, you know, is focused on merit. What do we deserve? And, you know, uh, over and over again, we've got to remind ourselves because the world is reinforcing its view in our minds every single day. Whether it's Something you hear out in the world, whether it's something you see on TV, hear on the radio, the world is reinforcing its view. We have got to constantly renew our thinking. Come to see ourselves through the eyes of God. And that needs to be, I think, one of our prayers. Lord, I want to learn to see things through your eyes. You know, Miles Stanford once in one of his writings says, you know, we're often encouraged to keep looking up. He said, we need to learn to keep looking down. (laughs) And he means because Scripture says we are positioned in the heavenlies, we need to learn to look at things from heaven, from a heavenly perspective. Rather than seeing ourselves down here looking up at him, learn to see things through his eyes. From a heavenly perspective. And if we learn to see things from a heavenly perspective. It will begin to change our lives here on earth. Now having made his opening remarks. 
Paul proceeds with his letter. And he starts describing for the Colossian believers the prayers which he offered up with regards to them. And these prayers centered very much about God's work in their lives. They centered a lot around, I think, uh, the uh, completeness of the work Christ had provided on their behalf. And these prayers fall into two categories. Prayers of thanksgiving for the Colossians believers' faith and uh, prayers of intercession. Now, we're barely going to get into this because we have five minutes. Uh, Before I go into it, let me stop and just say, are there any questions or comments on what we've been talking about? I need to leave a little bit of room uh, for that. And you can always feel free to flag me down. My wife's not the only one who can do that. Uh, If you have questions, if I haven't made something clear, uh, ask me. And... You know, if I can answer your question, I will. But I can also at times say, I don't know. Uh, Because there are things I do not yet know. I am still learning. Anything? Okay, well, we'll get started in this. We'll have to stop, pick up there next week. But he starts again with this thanksgiving for the Colossians' faith. Verse 3. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Now, this prayer of thanksgiving revolves around the impact that the gospel had already shown in the lives of those believers. And I think this is important in light of the remainder of the letter. Because here Paul is reminding them of the major change that had been wrought in them by their relationship with Christ up to this point. That since they had responded to the gospel message, there had already been a transformation. So, you know, there's this reminder that Christ has already made a difference in your life. And, you know, Paul tells them that he has gained, you know, heard there in Colossians, uh, I mean there in Rome, you know, I pointed out last week that uh, Paul had never met the Colossian uh, Christians, but nevertheless he has heard about them and it has prompted him to pray. And what he has heard is that their faith has resulted in their showing love for the brethren. Now, James in his epistle tells us that faith without works is dead. He doesn't say it's non-existent, but he's saying faith is not intended to just be something you have and that it doesn't impact you. Faith is meant to bring about a change, a change in our lives. And sad to say what many believers 
daily lives tell us about their relationship with God is not good. For many believers, their relationship with God is minimal. They have accepted Christ as their Savior. They have experienced the new birth. They are God's children. But this involves a very limited area of faith. All they had to do to become a child of God, all you had to do to become a child of God, is accept Christ as your Savior. You just had to put your confidence in one truth of God's Word. And that brought you in a family relationship. But that opens the door for so much more. And the much more is going to require faith in an ongoing and increasing level. There are numerous other statements in Scripture that will impact our daily walk if we believe God and appropriate them. And we'll have to stop there and pick up there next week and talk a little bit more about this because, you know, I'll point out when Paul, Paul talks about the impact the gospel had had in their life. When Paul speaks of the gospel, he speaks of something far deeper than we often think of with the gospel. The average Christian, if he's asked to define the gospel, will say, well, that Jesus died for our sins, and if we put our faith in him, we can go to heaven when we die. That's a small part of the gospel. There's so much more. And the more we understand the fullness of the gospel, the more we by faith accept it, the more it will transform the way we live on a day-to-day basis. So we'll close there. Let me pray. Lord, we do thank you that you deal with us in grace. Lord, I know for myself, all would be hopeless if any merit was involved. But Lord, you have accepted me. You have made me righteous in your standing. I mean, in your sight. And Lord, you have piled upon me the numerous blessings of your grace. Lord, I pray that in the days ahead that we will all come to understand with greater depth and clarity the riches of your grace extended to each of us. First, in the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.